Welcome to Strictly Business, the variety podcast in which we talk with some of the brightest minds working in media today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. It's been a little over a year since Adam Bold bought his way into the talent agency business when he became chairman of the Abrams Artists Agency. And it's been an eventful year, to say the least, considering the standoff between the talent agencies and the Writers Guild. So it's good to have Adam here to offer his perspective on a situation that hits close to home. Thanks for being here. Andy, thanks for having me. Cool. So we should note right off the top, in November, Abrams became the latest midsize agency to sign the Code of Conduct. Uh, this is the same document the major agencies refused to sign as the writers look to end packaging fees and affiliated production. So why did Abrams sign? Well, uh, things are different now than they were in the, in the beginning of this uh, impasse. I guess the, it's not a strike. It's, a, it's an impasse, whatever we, we want to call it. But um, the, the bottom line is that in, in the beginning, um, the ATA, the, the Talent Agents Association, was – empowered to negotiate on behalf of all of the member agencies uh, with the WGA. And at that time, um, once again, they were they were negotiating on behalf of, of, of all the members. Uh, things have changed. Number one, it's been a long time. I think it started perhaps in March, February or March. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people who just aren't working. Um, and there are a lot of shows that aren't being pitched. And even the ones that are, it's not quite exactly the same as it was before. They've had some success, but limited, uh, uh, n- not as much success as, as in the, the traditional methodology that, that things were done. So is this, I mean, has it been damaging to your business to have writers out on the sidelines this long? Well, I, look. Um, no I, question is damaging to theirs. Right. So damaging, I, I'm not sure, you know, financially, um, the company, the, the, the Abrams Artist Agency, like most of the midsize agencies, we have our strengths and we have parts of the business that were traditionally financially important. Um, Abrams in the lit department, was that wasn't really a strength of Abrams 1.0. It's something we very, very intently and strongly in, um, wanted to be for Abrams 2.0. So financially, we didn't really lose that much in terms of that, but... Um, still, there are uh, the, the lit department is really the the heart of an agency because our our talent clients, our actors, need projects, scripts to to uh, to, to make content with, and um, you know it it certainly has slowed um, the amount of shows that are being pitched, et cetera. Um, I think that um, so. The, so Hurt. I don't think hurt is quite the word, but certainly impeded uh, the the progress that we could be doing. Does Abrams package shows? We don't. Um, it, it's never really been an important part of of the company's financials, and quite honestly, going forward, um, it was not really a big part of um, of our our financial plans or what we've been looking for. So um, I, I think it's interesting. This, this, the whole concept of packaging, I think, it is worth having a discussion about because the, the term packaging now has a negative connotation to it. And I think that, that the actual concept of what a package is supposed to be, the way it's supposed to work, is actually a good one. And, and, um, and then I'll get in, in a moment I'll get to why it, it actually didn't work out that way. But um, there, there's an industry statistic that 80% of all shows 
that make it to television, which is, you know, one-tenth of one iota of all shows that actually are written or purchased or whatever the case may be. But 80% of them that actually make it to air don't get renewed for a second season. And the second season is important, and it's because uh, locks kick in and um, you have opportunities for um, escalations and, and all kinds of good things can happen when you get to the second season. So, so when you say lock, you mean specifically? So, so the, the writers, um, the creators of the show, um, then the network may have an, an opportunity after one, uh, in the first season, if they don't like how things are going, to replace them with others. After, when you get to the second season, usually the actors are attached permanently. The writers, the producers, et cetera, are, it, it, they're locked to the show. And that's important because, you know, after all said and done, what we're all about, what a talent agency is supposed to do is to keep our clients working as much as possible and making as much money as possible. And so um, by having those locks, it, it gives our clients a more predictable stream of income to be able to pay their bills and support their families after um, after that happens. And so when we can take a, a, a writer that we know will get their pages in on time and is capable and gets along with everybody and won't cause problems around the set, and we have um, our showrunner who we know will deliver a show on time, on budget, and give a good deliverable, and we have our actors who we know have chemistry together because think about how many times you've seen something and the cast is amazing and then it ends up being terrible because it just doesn't work for some reason. All of those things together increase the odds of a good deliverable, a good piece of content, which then in turn increases the odds of that TV show making it to the second season when all these other good things happen. And, and that sort of concept of packaging for the sole purpose of delivering a good piece of content, I think that, that that's okay. Now, what's But happened, you guys aren't actually in that no, business. No, no. To, to, the, to, that, to the extent of what a package has become. Okay. Okay. So in, in, to some extent, we do. We have, we'll have one of our writers and we'll go, oh my gosh, you know, this, cli- this talent client of ours would love this. And when you have a major talent attached to a project with a good writer and a good script, it makes it more saleable, right? Increases the odds of the financial success of that. And after all said and done, we're just trying to keep people working and to make as much money doing the job that they want to do as possible. Now, what kind of got lost along the way and what, what I think the WGA is really talking about when they, when they talk about we don't want packages is that um, there were scenarios whereby the agencies, through lack of transparency, nobody really knew who was in the package and who wasn't in the package. Nobody really knew who was benefiting from that package. And there were actually scenarios where an agency could end up making more money from their package fees than all of their clients put together. And because the, of that lack of transparency, what happened is people go, hmm, I wonder if this is if I'm in this package, because if I'm part of this project because it's good for me or am I part of this package because it's good for my agency? Am I getting the most money possible for this project or did they just get me the easiest, you know, do the least amount of work to, to, to get me to, to do this? And 
there were, there's clearly on a spectrum from everything was hunky-dory, but because of the lack of transparency, it created an opportunity for um, some concern all the way to there were, I'm sure, some instances where the agencies actually really didn't care about their clients and did whatever was was best for the agency. And I, I don't know that for a fact. I wasn't part of it. But that's why it's become so bad. And so, quite honestly, we don't need it. I think it's going to become less and less important as time goes on because of the way that media is distributed now. is It's so fractured. And so don't care, don't need it. Now, that doesn't mean that we still won't put groups of people together in a collaborative way, mm-hmm. but not in a package as, as it's become. So, But if you're not doing packaging, why did you guys take longer than some of the other agencies of your size to sign this code of conduct? Some of the other agencies were there months before you. Well, it was a few reasons. Um, first of all, it was the document itself. It wasn't the concept because we were willing to say we wouldn't do packaging right from from the get-go. Um, the problem was that there were other things that were in that document. So, for example, there's a requirement in the WGA's Code of Conduct that requ- contractually requires us as an agency to send to them a copy of every one of our WGA-covered clients' um, invoices and their contracts. Um, and in the beginning, the contract was was written in such a way that even if a client said, I don't want you to do that agency, we were specifically required to do it. And it put us in a situation where we had a conflict between the contractual obligation we have to the WGA and the fiduciary responsibility that we have to our clients. And I'm never, ever going to make a choice that goes against our clients. Everything we do is it starts with what's best for the client. Um, a, a second part of that of the reasoning was that at the in the beginning, the ATA was in active negotiations with the WGA on behalf of all of the members of the ATA. That um, earlier in late summer that ended, and so uh, the, we as as an individual agency were um, empowered then to make a deal, whatever we thought was best for for our business, and then. Um, number three, there was there were other requirements like um, they were. I, I was concerned about the data security. Um, when we send a contract to the WJ, I didn't know who was going to get it. it could, there could be a file clerk. There could be it could be floating all around. And clearly, the privacy of someone to to keep their earnings private is is part of our the the fundamental business practices in the United States of America. Um, the WGA has, has firmed things up since then um, in terms of protocols, et cetera, to make sure that that doesn't happen. So there's, there's certainly other issues here besides packaging. You know, we're having this conversation just days before a U.S. district judge will consider the WGA's motion to dismiss the agency's lawsuits on the grounds that, as a labor union, it's exempt from antitrust scrutiny. This is going to the courts. What does that mean for Abrams? And just how do you see this situation playing out, considering how out of control the standoff seems to have been? So th- that's a, that's another part of this whole kind. But the reason that we we sign the agreement now is that the 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 biggest issues, the biggest conflicts between the guild and the. those issues really revolve around the biggest of the big talent agencies and don't really affect us to a a large degree. And 
what, what does affect us is our clients. These are people that, that, that write shows, that write movies, that, that write projects, that, and we want to put those people back to work. And since, um, since most of those issues don't revolve around us, and since it appears that it's going to need uh, legal resolution, it's going to take a long time. And so what all we're trying to do is I, I'm not making any kind of social commentary on whether I think the WGA is more right legally or whether the ATA is more right legally. It's like we're going to get back to business to support our clients and to support the our uh, the employees of the of the Abrams Artist Agency 2.0. And we're in the meantime, when those larger issues get resolved, then we're willing to accept whatever those two big parties work out together. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's it, it appears to me that, that there's certainly um, competing interests between the larger agencies and the guild. There are certainly um, there's animosity. I'm not sure animosity is the right word, but there's there's business animosity. Um, there's, there's, there's definitely a, an adversarial relationship. And because of that, it's, it, they're going to use the courts. They, I, I don't think those, at least as I, we sit here today, I'm not sure that the two can sit down and actually work out a compromise, which is, you know, um, my dad always says that a successful compromise is when both parties are satisfied and nobody's happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think they'll end up with that at some point. But I think that, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's, it's just going to take them a while. And in the meantime, we just want to get people back to work and, and be able to pay their bills and have health insurance and make their house payments, et cetera. Well, I'm listening to all this and saying to myself, man, agency business is rough. And then I say to myself, wait a second, the guy I'm standing across from here bought his way into this business a few years ago. Why? Did, why were you interested in getting, because let's be clear from your background, you were not in the entertainment business more than, well, you were in a different capacity. We'll get to that. But as a, as a proprietor, a principal, you weren't in this business. So what attracted you to this, especially at a time where there were so many clouds hovering? So I didn't set out to be in, I never said, oh, I want to be in the talent business and I, uh, or I want to have a talent agency. And in fact, I'm still not. I'm not an agent. Um, I've never been to the Oscars. I don't want to go to the Oscars. I don't want to go to premieres. I don't, um, I'm not involved in the talent representation part of the business. I'm a, I'm a business guy. Um, what happened was a very, very dear friend of mine said, hey, Adam, will you take a meeting with these guys? And we're close enough that I, I'll take a meeting that he wants me to take uh, without asking who or why. Um, and it turns out that, that the the two gentlemen I met with are, are my partners now, uh, Brian Cho and Robert Adderman, who were then the CFO and COO of the Abrams Artist Agency. And Harry Abrams, the uh, f- founder of the company, um, had always told them that one day when he retired that he would sell them the business. He, um, in the meantime, uh, walked in one day and said, okay, I, I've sold the company to these private equity guys. You guys need to go make a deal with them. And they said, well, wait, wait a minute. Um, how about like, if we could make you the same deal, would you sell it to us instead? And so he did. He said he would. And um, we were introduced, and um, it, it made a lot of sense. They knew the agency business. I knew the financial business, how to, how to actually I've, – I've, over the – I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I've, I've bought, sold, started – built lots of businesses over the years and 
Um, that that's really my strength, and I, I saw a lot of opportunity um, in this industry because I, I really saw the need for an old school specialty style agency that were really fierce advocates for their clients, um, that thought in a way that is as much technology company as it is um, a, an agency company and uh, a place where um, all of the departments of the agency would collaborate to keep our clients working as much as possible and to make as much money as possible, regardless of what source that came from. Uh, we don't, we, the verticals, um, and um, it, it happened. Well, so it sounds, it doesn't sound as if like your vision of Abrams 2.0 is necessarily reinventing how agencies work. It sounds like it's about being the best possible agency. But this is still a time where people seem to be looking at agencies and saying, well, if they diversify away from their core business, then there's something there. Well, uh, look, um, here's the thing. The, the traditional model of, okay, let's go get a client um, a gig on a TV show, and we get 10%. The problem is that TV, as we know it, is changing. Um, I, I met with somebody the other day, and they told me that um, the four networks, the four major networks, are losing 18 to 24% of their viewership quarter over quarter, and that in the second quarter of 2019, the total share of all those networks put together was 47 And it used to be that a show would get canceled if it didn't have a 10, just one show on its own. And so now it's, it's a function of putting our clients to work, and I don't care if it's on a digital platform, if it's a streaming platform, I don't care if it's a podcast, I don't care if it's in a cartoon, it, I don't care, you know, if the clients want to do the project, if it's, it's something that is worthwhile, then we should be looking for all those things. And really, um, you know, and it's a worldwide market. It's not just as simple as, you know, being on in the U.S. It's like, how can, we, we look at each client as a brand. And then how do we maximize the value of that client's brand? Who are your top clients right now? I, honestly, I'm not in the talent representative. I mean, I could tell you who some of the, the, the more famous are, but we, it, it's not really about that. It's about good clients and um, solid clients. And, you know, look, we traditionally, the, the mid-tier agencies, one of the problems with the business model is when a client gets big, they get poached by one of the big ones. When an agent gets big, they get poached by one of the big ones. And I want to change that model. So the, how, do you, how do you change that? Well, number one, you make it the best place to be a client. Because if we're making a client 360 money from every possible source and they're working as much as possible, there's no reason for them to go someplace else. And the second part is to make it the best possible place to work. So we have a, a policy, no toxic people policy. No toxic clients, no toxic um, staff. Um, That's saying a lot in the talent agency look, business. And, when, and, when you, and look, the whole environment, the energy of our offices, both New York and L.A., is completely different than the big ones. Uh, for example, we took out uh, – we have one big conference room because we have to have staff meetings. Other than that, we took out all the conference rooms, and I put in living rooms because I don't want to be across the table from a client. I want to be next to the client. Take your shoes off. Um, we have a no tie ball, Like Unless – you know, come on. We want it to be a place that is comfortable – uh, for our clients and someplace that really feels like a nurturing environment. And we have people who really are fierce 
advocates for their clients. And then on top of that, as, as secondary goals, we have things like we, we, we need to find niches where we can, that can be financially important to us, um, where we can add value to our clients' lives and careers, um, but where um, it's not maybe big enough for the bigger ones to compete with us. And How big is the agency, by the way? How many agents are we talking so about? So right now we're um, plus or minus 65 or 70 agents, mm-hmm. uh, New York and L.A. put together. And, you know, ideally, I mean, someday maybe 100 tops. I mean, that's really as big as we want to get. And um, But, we're you know, we've really focused on we want to be a greenhouse for emerging diverse talent. Right. It's one of the things, and I'll tell you, one of the things I'm really, really proud of, and I, I, I digress for a moment, but it, it's, it's because I'm so proud of it, I think it's worth talking about, is in, in the 13, 14 months that my partners and I have, have owned this agency, um, we now have a total headcount of, of, I think, 90 women and 80 men, um, but if it, they're just in menial positions, it doesn't really matter. Our agents... Position of power, right? Our agents are exactly 50-50 women and men. And our upper management, which includes the three owners who are all men, uh, we have 13 people, seven men, six women. And of the 13, six men and women are from diverse groups. And That is commendable and atypical given what the, the representation ranks of this business typically the, the, are. The way that we've done that is we're doing it authentically. I've always said, like, I want—I don't want to have diversity just for the sake of to 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 look good from some optical standpoint. Um, what we do is, in every position, you know, we'll hire white men too. Um, it's find the best people we can for the job and people who are, will be part of the team. But if you give us a choice between someone who two people who are equally qualified, but one is from a group that has traditionally had a harder time moving up the ladder, we'll take that person. And what happens is it tends to feed on itself. It's also a function of where do you recruit from? Uh, Because um, if you recruit from more diverse universities, for example, you're going to end up with a more diverse workforce. And when you you have that, and, and thereby having a more diverse client, list as well. And it's, it's not something that we, it's just part of our, our core fiber. My, my dad, I talk about my dad a lot. He was my, is my mentor. And he, he always taught me, I grew up in Kansas. My dad always taught me to judge people by what they do and say, and not by what they are. And that's how I've really lived my life. And because so if I like you, it's because I like you. And if I don't, it's not because of what you are. It's because you're a jerk. Um, and in, in this case, um, we've authentically, we're just looking for people who are the best, but I, I think I'm not trying to change the world, but I think we can change our little part of the world. And, you know, with, we have plus or minus 3,500 clients and that gives us a, a, a real opportunity to put a wedge into, um, the, the diversity of, of the entertainment business. And, you know, like, like I said, can't change the whole world, but, you know, I can, we can affect what we can affect. And I, I think, look, we did that in 13 months, and I think that we can, you know, really make a difference, and, or at least maybe, you know, flip a few dominoes. 
So you were you mentioned that you are a serial entrepreneur. This is one of many different mm-hmm. kinds of industries and businesses mm-hmm. you're involved in. Are there other entities that you are in the media business with beyond just the agency? So in the entertainment business, um, I, I have an investment um, in a company called Powder Cake Media, uh, which is a partnership with uh, myself and uh, Paul Feig and uh, Laura Fisher, who is the, the CEO of the company. And, and Paul, of course, is a memorable writer, director. director. Yeah. He's uh, got everything from Freaks and Geeks to Bridesmaids to um, he's a Christmas movie that he, that he has right now. And he's really a, a wonderful person. Um, he, he's from Michigan originally, so we kind of hit it off uh, being um, Midwest guys who ended up in, in Los Angeles, you know, Midwest uh, sensibilities, but with L.A. worldliness. And um, he's and by the way, this powder keg, as a mandate, um, we're producing content um, that is um, empowering women, people of color, and LGBTQ. And um, he is all like like me, very interested uh, in authentic diversity and promoting moving people up the ladder faster. That's great, but I should point out: does it put you in a weird position to be? Owning an agency and also having a piece of a production entity, does that get into the affiliated production issue? I don't think so. And the, the reason it doesn't is because I'm not actively involved in, the, um, in Powder Keg, and it's not, um, it's not someplace that, like, I'm not saying that we've got, I hope as many of the Abrams clients as possible get, get work through Powder Keg, but we're not pushing it. And I don't, uh, because I'm not involved in the talent representation part, um, uh, you know, my agents can be making deals with Powder Keg, and I don't even know it, um, and vice versa. I'm at a board level only, uh, whereas act, uh, with Abrams, I'm, I'm more actively involved in the business. The funny thing is you you are, you are or were a media personality in your own right. You've got a background as an a investment advisor. You had mm-hmm. your own syndicated radio program. Mm-hmm. It's quite a career arc uh, from that to this. You know, um, First of all, I, I think it's businesses. They're both businesses, and where I think the similarities lie, when you look at the businesses that I have invested in over the, over the years, there's there's kind of a common theme, and that is helping regular people to be more successful in life. At um, my my previous company, the investment company was called the Mutual Fund Store. And um, I started that company in the, in the basement of a little office building in the suburb of Kansas City. We had no clients. We had no assets under management. When I sold the company in 2016, we were one of the five largest independent investment management companies in the country. We had, wow. we had um, uh, 120 offices in 100 cities. But what our specialty was, were we catered to what we, we called the mass affluent. That's people with fifty to $500,000 to invest. And it's a segment of the population that was largely abandoned and abused by the major financial services companies. So if you've got $10 million, Goldman Sachs wants to talk to you. The Merrill Lynch wants to talk to you. But if you're a guy that worked at Procter & Gamble for 30 years and has 250000 in your 401k, they didn't. And terrible things happen could have happened to those people from some of the big financial firms. Well, I saw the same thing here. Um, we clearly um, we we want our clients to be as successful and famous and, and as, as possible, but we're not. I'd rather have a whole client list of B level people who work all the time than to have one pain in the neck A list client. Um, and so, I think that to a large extent, 
the similarity is that that a lot of actors, writers, directors, showrunners, voiceover talent, et cetera, that were not at the A-list were sometimes abandoned and abused by their their representatives at, at the big firms. And what we're doing is something different. Our overhead structure is different. Our goals and, and um, philosophies are different. And um, accordingly, we will do one heck of a job for those people. And so then this makes it a, a really good time for your business. I would imagine there's a lot of clients rethinking at this time the value of the bigger agencies and what they could do. Well, look, um, I'm not demeaning or diminishing what they can do because um, they, they have the, the power and the wherewithal to put together incredibly wonderful and, and ginormous projects that, that we don't. And, and certainly we want our clients to participate in those to whatever extent is good for the client. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I think that there's a, there is a segment of the entertainment business that needs us. And we, we can make a real difference. And that's what we're trying to do is like, Let's figure out what our core competencies are, what we do better than anybody else, and just do that and not try and be everything to everybody. One last question. You, when you had backed a previous production company years ago, uh-huh. had gotten some familiarity with the agency business. You had worked, uh, or CAA had represented that yeah. entity. So what was your takeaway from that experience? How did that inform what you're doing with Abrams today? Well, I... I the, the agency business has, has changed, and those big agencies, what I saw were things like when, and, and I'm not picking on CAA, by the way, it's, it's just emblematic, I think, of, it's, it's my range of experience. So I think what it is, is that with the big agencies, because they are owned by private equity firms, they have, those private equity firms have a fiduciary responsibility to the people who have given them money to invest to make the biggest profit possible, to make every dollar possible. We're in a place we don't have outside investors. It's, it's, it's our money. And so we can take the long play. So in a lot of cases, I, I saw where the agents there would, um, they were very focused on what can I get today instead of taking the long play and nurturing a client's career. And, you know, sometimes it's right for a client that has a bigger quote to take a project for $10,000 because it's going to expose them to a new audience or it's going to give them, uh, change their, their image, brand image in a certain way. Um, and, and we want to be able to, we can do those things because we're not beholden to, to, our, our, to our investment bankers and to um, the investors in terms of getting the returns this week. I also, we saw things where, you know, um, they, sometimes it felt like they didn't really care whether we got a project or some other client got a project, as long as it was one of their and there are also instances where, um, you know, the, the way that the bonus structure works, there's X amount of dollars of bonus that's available for all of the agents. And if you're an agent and I'm an agent, we both represent a 40-year-old blonde woman. Um, if I find out that my client's not going to get the part, it actually behooves me financially to tank your client. Because if you have a win and I have a loss, 
I get less of the bonus pool. If we both have losses, we get the same piece of the bonus pool. And I'm not saying they, they do that, but it sets up a potential for a conflict of interest. And at, at the Abrams Artist Agency 2.0, one of the things that we've done to make it the best place to work is that every agent is given ownership in the company every year. Hmm. So that even if a client, and, and by the way, we've also set up their, their bonus structure so that a portion of their bonus is dependent upon how much business they did with other departments within the company. So they're encouraged to collaborate and they're encouraged to help each other. Even though they might not get money today, they'll see it in the value of the stock that they have in the company because the company does well. And, you know, it's just, it's a little bit different way of thinking. And quite honestly, it couldn't scale. You know, if, if we have 50 agents in New York and 50 in LA, that's about as big as we can get without having to, to, um, to be able to, to, to not be able to, to work in the manner that we want to work. So we're a specialty agency to do certain things and do those things really, really well. And um, because of the, we don't have the financial constraints and because we can think long term, invest in brands for our clients, um, invest in IP for our clients, um, those sorts of things, it, it, it gives us a freedom and, and a, uh, an ability to do things in a way that's different. Well, it sounds like you're doing things differently, all right. Uh, wish you the best with that in the new year. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming in. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. 